This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. everyone it's still summer in Tel Aviv at least that means it's a gazillion degrees outside and it feels like walking in chicken soup wherever Jonathan is in the world location secret but I hope it's better weather Jonathan uh, I it certainly is uh, not better than the way you are in terms of just sheer degree of heat but it's better than I think I would have got at home mm-hmm. it certainly feels better because that's the point of being on vacation and uh, so yeah uh, the sun is shining even if it's metaphorically uh, just by having a break I think uh, the listeners have deserved it it's been a hard year for everyone but we have a little summer treat uh, for you each week that we're not providing a brand new edition of unholy it's a chance to listen again to To some conversations we have loved Yoni and I have had um, we love every week's episode of course Yoni will tell you them all by numeric order um, but some conversations we love to listen to again and one of them is the guest that we spoke to well when did we speak to Yoni Remind it was in May we spoke to mine Bialik who's an actress a producer a writer a A uh, podcaster, by the way, she's also the host of uh, Jeopardy. And also, for our purposes, a grand, grand, grandniece of Chaim Nachman Bialik, also very important Yichus, we should uh, point out. Uh, that we, is serious Yichus. That's, that's And very also serious. confirmed now as the, you know, proper, full-time, established host of Jeopardy, which is a sort of iconic position in the TV, American TV landscape. So she is a big deal on American TV. I think when we spoke to her, she had just completed uh, a big film um, that made a lot of, got a lot of attention, really interesting, talking about her personal experience with grief and the Jewish rituals around grieving, the Shiva, the Kaddish. So it was a really, we went, we, we sort of went there in this conversation. I think we got into some very good stuff with her and she was very candid, very open. And, uh, you know, I think people will enjoy hearing once again our conversation with Mayim Bialik. So, Jonathan, do you want to set us up Jeopardy style? Yonid, I will take famous Jews for 400. <laughs> This actress is also a game show host, a neuroscientist. Her first directorial debut, the film How They Made Us, is out now. She's a great, great, great niece, I believe, of Chaim Nachman Bialik. I gave you all the clues, Jonathan. Who is Mayim Bialik? Very good. Who is Mayim Bialik? There we are, 400. <laughs> we are so, so privileged to talk to you today, Mayim. Thank you so much for coming on Unholy. Thank you. I'm surprised, like, maybe it could have been a daily double, maybe next time. <laughs> I don't want to give him too much money. He, he does, you know, silly stuff with it. I, I think it's okay. $400 for him is fine. Um, wow, we have so many things to talk about um, today. And um, I think I, I, I'll probably, you know, I should open up with your, your film, which is really your directorial debut. And you, it's called As They Made Us. You wrote this Um, after your father's death, it's about a family indeed uh, coping with with a father's uh, decline. And the daughter has to basically deal with all this. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know how this came about and how much of a of a passion project this is for you? And again, the first time that you're writing and directing, this is really a first for you, yeah. I mean, obviously, i've I've written um I've written other things, <laughs> but never wrote a screenplay. And, um, My, my father, Zichron Al-Avracha, he passed away. It was just seven years ago. He died on Pesach, actually. And um, I, I followed the very kind of structured year of mourning that traditional Judaism, you know, has been doing for a few thousand years. Um, <laughs> and 
I um, found that you're very cathartic, you know, all the things. Um, and it was actually after my year lifted that I started feeling a need to write things down. And, you know, long story short, that's what I started doing. I wrote first kind of images and a lot of music was coming to me. And it's not like it was like memories I didn't have. It was just things started coming together with visual components that um, I started writing down. And I originally wrote in prose and then um, showed it to someone very close to me. And he suggested that I turn it into a script, which I had never, I literally, I didn't even own the program, you know, called Final Draft, that you actually write scripts and I'd never written a script. So what I did is I, I wrote and a lot of it, yes, is true. And much of it is not as well. There are things that didn't happen, which means it's not an autobiography. It's not a memoir. Um, but I, um, I got this unbelievable cast who really loved this script and wanted to be in it. So Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen play the parents. Um, Diana Agron, um, many people know her from Glee and also Shiva Baby. Um, and Simon Helberg from The Big Bang Theory. He is in it and it's this family, exactly like you said. Um, and there's a lot of flashbacks and kind of this notion that the things that happen to us stay with us, even if they're not in our kind of conscious memory. Um, it's a very visually kind of specific film and it's a very musically specific film. And it follows this woman who's in kind of that sandwich generation of, uh, you know, caring for her own children and also her parents. Uh, as they become quirkier and um, in many ways more difficult as they get older. And it, it is a Jewish film, meaning it's mm -hmm. a family. It's a family that happens to be Jewish, but I didn't set out to make a Jewish movie. I did use a lot of the things um, from my life uh, and put them in the movie again, not to make any sort of particular statement, uh, but that's just, that's the family that I wanted to show. And um, in particular, the, the Jewish traditions surrounding mourning are, um, I found very uplifting and also very visually interesting to shoot. And so um, that is as they made us and you can get it on like Amazon prime or you can get it um, on like iTunes. Um, it was in some theaters uh, here, but it's a small film. And, uh, and that is sort of the story with that movie. With, with the, um, the year of mourning, I, I'm very struck by what you say about that. I, I I've been through that myself uh, more than once. And the, there is something creative about the process, and I don't quite know what it is, but you're not the only person who has been found that a creative project has come out of the end of going through that. And I think of Leon Wieseltier's book, Kaddish, but there are other examples. Right. And I mean, my own feeling is it's something that Jews really get right that year of mourning. It's psychologically <laughs> very kind of insightful, but not just the year, the shiver, everything. But tell you tell us what it was about that year that, that you've put into the film and that sparked you creatively? Because I find that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, here, here's the thing, like saying Kaddish for a year is, is not for everyone. And if you want to go to Minyan every day, there are certain denominations of Judaism that make it very clear that it's not for everyone. <laughs> so I also- Meaning not for women, you mean? I was able to recite Kaddish everywhere that I traveled. Um, I, I was- in many places around this country and um, also in Israel. So um, the best way to know that you can recite Kaddish is to go to an Orthodox minion because they have them every day. So um, I mainly said Kaddish in community, in many communities that wouldn't count me. And so it was a fascinating year as a woman also to experience that. And many people, especially people who were kind of surprised by the intensity of the film, because it is, it's very emotional. It's a very raw um, set of performances 
they asked if it was cathartic making the movie. And I said, no, the catharsis came before. That's what allowed me to make the movie was um, traditional Judaism is not for everyone. And structured for me, I, I happen to resonate a lot with halachic Judaism. And um, that year, I can't say that I, I think everyone should say Kaddish for a year because it makes you creative. What it does is it forces you to be with yourself in ways that you never have been before in a world without the person you're mourning. So I had a, a really, really sometimes frustrating, sometimes anger producing, sometimes beautiful, deeply sad experience in that year. But what I was doing was I was learning something new in honor of a person who died. It's like life is for the living, right? And that's a huge component of the Jewish experience is we're very much about what happens, what we eat, how we act, how we speak, how we grieve. Um, and yes, for all the things that a lot of people feel Judaism gets wrong, and I got a couple on my list, uh, we really, <laughs> we know how to do death and mourning. We figured it out, like make you sit in one place. Don't let you be alone walk around the block when the first week is over, you know, mark the first month and then just do not run from your feelings. So for me, what happened when I couldn't run is that I started looking. And for me, what came was again, like an emotional catharsis that for me led to wanting to kind of put it down on paper. But I think that process can be, you know, fulfilling, even if you don't write a screenplay. <laughs> ever. I, mean, I completely agree. You know, it's interesting. I hear you, I heard you talk about the film and you always say, I wrote this and I waited for a real screenwriter to come along. And then they told me that's okay. And then I waited for a real director to come along and I realized I can do it. And it, it's so interesting because you, you at the same time wrote a book that kind of it really empowers girls and young women. It's called Girling Up, How to Be Strong and Smart and Spectacular. And I wondered how that works together. That feeling of, on the one hand, not feeling good enough to do this uh, and then feel, saying to girls and to young women, you know, you have to feel good enough to do this. It's, um, it's, an interesting... it, it's a really interesting question. I, I haven't been asked that, you know, and the the answer is I, you know, when I wrote Girling Up, I also wrote Boying Up, which is um, that came after That's that. That's for Jonathan. The Girling Up is That's right. It's so for the boys. Good. Well, or right. for any female person who wants to, you know, maybe better understand what, <laughs> what is going on in there. Um, but, you know, for me, I wrote the book that didn't exist when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I was raised by two feminists, you know, both my parents were progressive. They were civil rights activists. Like I was raised by two feminists who did the best they could from being born in World War II, you know, as the, the black sheep of their family in being liberals who, you know, were tear gassed at Washington, you know, fighting for all the things. So for me, you know, my personality is such that um, the culture I was raised in and, and what I'm like, I, I do have a very hard time still as a woman asserting myself. You know, I, one of the things I noticed actually while working on this film was how much I used the phrase, I think in an email when I actually didn't think it was what I knew. So instead of, I think I'd like to start at 6am tomorrow. What I meant was I'd like to start at 6am. <laughs> that sounds Maybe very familiar. That sounds I think very you might familiar be secretly, to me. You might be secretly British though, because, <laughs> because I begin every, Yoni will testify that I say, I wonder if. Well, that's. Is, I think that's, you know, that, that, that is definitely a colloquialism um, from, <laughs> from a culture that it's true is, is not mine, but um, I think for, for a lot of, I, I had the experience, I think that a lot of women have, and it was actually my ex-husband who, when I said like, I don't know if I can make this movie. I never done. He said, if you were a dude right out of <laughs> film school, you'd be like, I'm gonna make a movie. It's gonna be amazing. 
And I was like, you know what? You're probably right. Um, and I also think it's okay for there to be lots of different kinds of women, just like there are lots of different kinds of men. Um, and that is something I still struggle with. Um, and, you know, I'm raising two boys, but, you know, I believe that we should all raise feminists in terms of people who understand the importance of the emphasis of the special qualities that women have while not degrading those that men have um, and seeking for, you know, um, equal representation and yes, the right to your body and your privacy as well while we're at it. I mean, a lot of those views, you obviously com completely channel them your own way, but they would not be, you know, unpopular among liberal Hollywood types. And yet there are some views you offer and express, which are not immediate sort of crowd pleasers, I would guess, in movie making circles. And I'm thinking of the fact you do, you're out there with the Z word or Z word, you say you're a Zionist, <laughs> you use that word. You know, a lot of people will think that's a word that you kind of people steer clear of, very often misunderstood. You say it, you use it. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I went to UCLA, I went to a, a very fine public university. And, uh, you know, I was there at the time when affirmative action wasn't a dirty phrase, meaning that was seen as a, an empowering thing that many um, universities were doing. Obviously, the climate has shifted, but, you know, it was the beginnings of, um, you know, swastikas being chalked um, outside of Jewish events. It was the beginning of Zionism is racist. I mean, we, we had never heard those things, you know, in the early 90s and mid 90s on a campus like that. And so, you know, I also was kind of raised in a liberal progressive academic environment where I absolutely believe in free speech. I absolutely believe in healthy conversation about the policies of all sorts of governments, including that of Israel, which I consider, you know, my historic and cultural and religious and spiritual homeland. We now see that that has grown into a much, 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 much larger movement, uh, especially on, on campuses. And one of the things that is the most disturbing to me, which I just, it's so funny, my family in Israel is like, we're so proud of you. I refuse to think of the word Zionist or Zionism as a bad word. I just, I refuse. And I remember when someone, there was a, a thing on my Facebook and someone said, did you know she's a Zionist? And it was as if the word was, God forbid, fascist or God forbid, Nazi. I mean, this is the other conversations around that. And um, the reason that I chose to kind of speak out more about it is that many of my young fans from, I have fans, you know, all over the world from many places where they know very little about, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. People started coming to my defense and saying, Mayim's not a Zionist. She's such a nice person. She would never be a Zionist. And that's when I realized, oh no, oh, we don't, we, this is just a definitional problem. So I literally just started defining what Zionism is because I saw that people literally didn't even know what it meant. So, um, yeah, it's not a popular place to be, but like I said, to me, it's not, I, I refuse to call, to think of that as a bad word. I, it's just, it's not, there are many people who are Zionists who do bad things. There are also many people who are socialists and liberals and Republicans who do bad things. Like I, the word in and of itself is, is the right to an autonomous and safe and free country. That's what it was made for. That is my home. That's like that. That's what it is. That's what Zionism is. Talk to us a little bit more about you say that is my home. Ex explain that a little bit more to us. How, how does that feel? Um, with you? How does that resonate with you? You know, it's a very funny identity. You know, I, I, I get very emotional about it because, you know, I, I didn't go to Israel till I was 16 years old. I didn't meet most of my family in Israel until I was 16. 
And, you know, back then it was like, we could maybe afford like a phone call a month. So my mother could hear her sister's voice, you know, like it was so different to grow up across the world from family without zoom and without phones and computers and, you know, all those things. So, um, I did, I had a, a really transformative experience in Israel for the first time. My soundtrack, if anyone's wondering, was U2's Rattle and Hum, which is a phenomenal album. And forever, you know, I remember it was raining and it was Hanukkah at the hotel, like the first time I went to the hotel and it was uh, unbelievable. Like I had that experience with my family and like, you know, there's places I've never been because I didn't go on Ulpan or I didn't go on Birthright. Like I've never been to the Galil, you know, like there's things that I like want to do. Um, but I did like all the highlights of like Yerushalayim and I've been to, you know, a lot and I've done Tel Aviv and, you know, most of those parts of the country. And I have been to Haifa. And then I went back every about every year, year and a half, every two years. And the climate that we live in now, you know, without sounding like a paranoid Jew, it doesn't feel good. I have many friends who've stopped wearing a yarmulke since Trump, and that's very painful. It's scary in the city I live in. There have been attacks at places that I go and. You know, I grew up with places that I went in Israel being bombed. So it's like, it's terrible. It's it's terrible to feel that. And um, I've raised my children to know that there there's a place. There's a place that that is ours and that we can have citizenship there. If we pay our taxes, we can have citizenship there. And that is our home. That's the place where we go. And there are um, many problems with a lot of the policies of the state of Israel, just like there are many problems with the policies of the state of the country that took my family in when there was nowhere else to go. Um, And that is the place where a large portion of my family has, um, they've been pioneers. They have made the desert bloom themselves with their hands. And um, I don't agree with all the places that my family lives, but that's our home. That's where we go. That's where we know our safety is. That's um, what that means. And but we do I mean, all agree that, that Israel is home. <laughs> that, I mean, you saying Israel is home. I just wonder, people, I mean, this seriously, people who watch Jeopardy and, you know, that's a huge part of America's national life. You've you've got a place there that makes you a kind of national treasure. And yet you're saying your home is mm-hmm. somewhere else, not America. And you didn't qualify particularly. You said that's my home. And that mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very struck by that. No, and and I think also um, I'm I'm also a a diehard patriot. My grandparents showed up on the shores of Manhattan with nothing, and this country took them in. Country had a lot of complexity around how it took people in as well, but the, this is where they came. They didn't speak English, and my grand my mother's parents actually never really commanded the English language. Um, you, you know, they came to a place that had a dozen newspapers in Yiddish. Like this was, you know, that's, that is also my home, you know? And I I hate to say that the place where you go when you're scared is your home. But for me, it's, it's not just that, you know, I'm a, I love America in all its complexity because it is the place that saved, that saved us, saved my family. It's a very Jewish concept to be able to hold two things in one place and um, meaning one to have two homes in your heart. Exactly. Like, mm. I mean, that's what I'm a, a product of, like the Soloveitchik kind of line of modern orthodoxy of like, if you're not feeling tension, you're probably not thinking hard enough. Right. Like this is our existence as Jew. Like we wander, we wander and we're displaced and we blend in, but also we don't. And it's OK. We can both be universalists and we can be very, 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 very specific. <laughs> is it has it become harder 
for you to sort of defend that I'm a staunch Zionist position? Like, over of course, the like the news doesn't look so good. Yeah, we know that. Israel needs a new publicist. My publicist is terrific. You know, maybe like the whole country could use a little boost. Um, um, yes, there are, you know, I mean, this is what it's like to be in the diaspora. Like we're far. And I also feel like, you know, for people who either have never been there or who have never spent an extended period of time there or who have never, um, you know, chosen to pioneer um, a life there, it's very easy to sit in judgment and know what it feels like. Um, but I've I've spent extensive periods of time there. I've gone when there's bombings. I've gone when there aren't. I've gone before the intifada, the second intifada. You know, I've done I've done all the things that mm-hmm. um, that I've been able to. And there are many places in the world where I'm not welcome because I go to Israel, and that's devastating to me. Um, a lot of people don't know that to be a public Jewish person is a very interesting position to be in. But like I said, I've learned pretty quickly that a lot of people like they they don't want to talk. <laughs> They don't want to know. They don't want to hear. They they don't like Israel and they don't like Jews. So I want to I want to ask something about your career. We've been talking about Israel and Judaism, and I, I want to say because it really isn't a standard Hollywood career if such a thing exists, right? I mean, you started as a child star, Blossom Beaches. You took a twelve year hiatus, got a PhD in neuroscience, and then sort two of children. had two children. Another important thing in a biography for sure. Um, and then sort of catapulted back to fame as Amy Farrah Fowler in, uh, in, in The Big Bang Theory. I mean, huge back. It's a huge startup and success. This is really an unusual route, isn't it, to, to take? Oh, yeah. This is not. I mean, this and also it wasn't planned that way. I just this is like putting one foot in front of the other and seeing what happens in life. Yeah. You know, the reason I returned to acting after 12 years and, you know, I'm sure you'll both laugh at this. Like I ran out of health insurance because. Being a graduate student, they give you like a year and then it's like, okay, good luck in the universe, you know, (laughs) finding health insurance. So I literally went back to acting because acting was was the safe place to go back to. Well, I wasn't planning on being a regular on a TV show. I never thought that would happen. I was teaching neuroscience for five years after I got my degree. I taught Hebrew. I taught piano. I was like teaching with a baby strap to my chest. My hair was down to my tush. Like I was like a hippie chick. I was not, (laughs) you know, and I started auditioning literally just to, you know, try and get just like a couple even small jobs to try and start getting, you know, you get like credits towards insurance when you're an actor. That's how our union works. Um, I had never seen The Big Bang Theory. I thought it was a game show. I didn't know that I was going to be a regular on a TV show. So, you know, all these things like just kind of, you know, they happen. And obviously neuroscience was a huge commitment. It was 12 years of my life. And, you know, having my first son in grad school and my sec, I took my doctoral hood pregnant and had him after getting my degree. So, um, definitely not, you know, a straight derech, but that's just, you know, everybody's got theirs and that's mine, you know. Do you miss the neuroscience? Uh, I, I miss being in an, in an academic environment. Yes. Um, you're telling me Jeopardy is not an academic environment? Um, it, is, it's, well, that's the thing. It, it's a very intellectual. No, it's a very intellectually stimulating environment, but being a scientist with a specialization means you're studying, you know, all things around your specialty. And I had a, an incredible year of seminars in the department of neuroendocrinology, where we studied gender and sexuality long before anybody was talking about it in the public media, because it's been part of the scientific literature for quite some time. So I miss that, you know, I miss being around those kinds of conversations. Um, and yeah, it's very different being in front of the camera, like, you know, now, people care what my hair looks like, whereas in grad school, nobody cares. 
I read somewhere, by the way, that you started the career, the Hollywood career, as your father took a picture of you, sent it to agents and said, this kid looks like Barbara Streisand. And it was my parents. Letter. Yeah, my that's mom. That's true. Is that, that's is true. That I, I have a copy of the letter still. They typed it on a very fancy, those like electric typewriters. Remember when those came out and we couldn't believe that, you know, it could do that. Yeah. My mom typed a letter. My dad just took a picture of me and they said, this is who she looks like. And I like vaguely knew who those people were. I was like, oh, other Jewish people. Cause I, nobody else looked like me on television in uh, 1986. Like this was not, this is kind of what I looked like just on a smaller body. Um, so yeah, that was how I, I, I watched Blossom. I remember this. I mean, yeah, it, I was 14 when Blossom came out. I was 14 to 19. And that's, it's, it's funny that you say no one else looks like, looked like that. Blossom was supposed to be about a boy. We had to fight to do a show about a girl. There wasn't a primetime show about a girl at that time. I mean, nobody thought people would watch. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't have success in commercials, which is what most kids do because they, they didn't, you know, like ethnic was not what they cast for. You know, the, the look was what they called all American, which is like a joke now because I went to public school in Los Angeles. Like most people didn't, like most people were, you know, I grew up with, with black kids, with Asian kids, with, with kids who had just immigrated from Mexico and Central America. Like what's all American, you know? We're talking among, about your- among, among Jews, like everybody's <laughs> like, oh yeah, she looks like half the people in my family. Like, cause I'm, you know, I'm Polish and Hungarian and Ukrainian. So like just put it all together and we're bound to look alike at some point, <laughs> me and most Jews. This looks like a Shabbat dinner to me. Like the three That's of us, right. just <laughs> saying. Um, but there's, I, look, you're a serious person and neuroscience and <laughs> no, there's something I need you to solve for me because I've heard you talk uh, quite extensively. Obviously the big bang theory is just a huge show. And you kind of think, I, I, I remember seeing the beginning of it thinking it's so funny, but then they'll run out of geek jokes after one season. Uh, no, they didn't. They never did. Um, but I, I remember you talking about the very, um, sort of at length, the difference between what a nerd and a geek is. And I'm not, you know, I have to have your thinking on this because um, Jonathan Friedland on the one hand doesn't read science fiction or fantasy at all. Like you say Lord of the Rings to him. He thinks it's a jewelry store. On the other hand, (laughs) on the other hand, Oxford wrote 12 books. Look at the size of his library. Could you just solve this to be a nerd? Look at the size of his glasses. He's a, he's a nerd. nerd. Okay. So nerd. Got it. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I need an expert. Yeah, you can be a nerd and a geek if you'd like to be. Okay. You're neat. Do you think step forward, you're neat, Levy? Do you think for the double title? Because <laughs> you, because you're neat is a science fiction. I I would say obsessive and true, true and true. fantasy and like have done like three. You how many degrees had you done by the time you were twenty five? I think three, four, four. I think you, you get the, sure you get both. I get she both. Gets it's nerd like and geek. Double Jeopardy! Yay! Okay, I get nerd both. Nerd and happy. geek. Oh. I'm not sure I like where this turned out. I was going to make You're fun the of one you. who opened the I conversation. I know, it's my fault. It's my fault. I should never do that. Total nerd and total geek. Um, whereas you, Mayim, I think what? Are we getting, going with geek and nerd both, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. She's a neuroscientist. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, so that, that, just that nails with- geek. No, so the, he didn't get it. We just went through it, Jonathan, because he doesn't get it. So he, the nerd is... The, the nerd part is usually kind of more like the academic, like the brainy, the cerebral, like often kind of serious. Like it has nothing to do with kind of cultural uh. stuff. Whereas geek, you'll usually find, I don't like to call them obsessions just because I'm a scientist. There are often fixations or strong interests in things like Star Wars or Star Trek or 
that kind of geek culture. Many people are geeks and they're not nerds, meaning they love fantasy or sci-fi and stuff like that, but they have no interest in kind of like academically being, they wouldn't want to have a library. It wouldn't occur to them. Right. I see. You have unpacked it for me very, very powerfully <laughs> there. I do now feel um, educated on that point. Um, and you're neat. you definitely still are both. Um, the film is uh, available on Amazon Prime and other places, and it's called As They Made Us. It is the direct, directorial, how do you say that? It's the first film directed by our very special guest, Mayim Bialik. Thank you so much for being on Unholy. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure, Mayim. Thank you. Really a pleasure to talk to you both. So Mayim Bialik there settling what has been a long-running <laughs> debate uh, between us about nerds and geeks. As always, the answer to almost every Jewish question is always both. <laughs> And uh, pretty well always. And, um, and Mayim Bialik got us to that place. But yeah, this, it's a great pleasure just hearing it again. A lesson learned. Such a good guess. This was a lesson learned for me. Never try and trap Jonathan Friedland in a question because they'll do the same to you. And you don't want that to happen. And, and I think since I've learned that lesson, it's just learning it the hard way. I think a lot of what you said about, you know, being a Zionist in Hollywood and obviously what that entails and the way that she said that that word is not, you know, it's imbued with different meanings and how she uh, wanted to talk about that. Also, I think uh, many interesting points about female empowerment, right? Being the person who's writing this film and then saying, oh, someone else is going to have to fix it. Someone else is going to have to direct it. And until the moment she realized, no, actually, I can try doing that. Uh, which I found very inspiring. So that was our conversation with Mayim. Next week, Yoni and I will be back, but with an, a brand new, up-to-date, current edition of Unholy. So do listen in for that again. And Yoni, you will have succeeded in getting me back to the grindstone and to hard labour, which I know is what you've been wanting all <laughs> summer. Four long. long weeks I've been waiting for that. Yes, so the third season of Unholy right around the corner with new and wonderful conversations conversations waiting for you soon. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.